just want to talk a little bit about the first two parables, um, but I want to major uh, this morning on the parable of the lost son, or the two lost sons, or the father who pursues, depending on which way you want to look at it. But I want to just talk about the context, first of all, because I think that's important. So the context is, is who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the tax collectors and the sinners, these two groups of people. Um, And the Pharisees and the scribes um, come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you're fraternizing with these two groups of people. Do you really think you should be doing that? Isn't it a bit below your dignity? Aren't you compromising yourself by doing that? And I think we see in these two groups of people, the tax collectors and the sinners, we see two marginalized groups of people. We see that there are the socially marginalized, the tax collectors, and then there are the morally marginalized, the sinners. Now, the tax collectors are hated by just about everybody, um, the Jews and the wider society, and the sinners are those who don't conform to what the religious establishment of the time felt that they should conform to. So these two groups of people. And those two groups of people are still with us today. We still have the, um, the socially marginalised, those who society um, looks down on, um, the, um, you know, the, uh, the, el- the, the vulnerable, uh, the elderly, the drug addicts in some cases, and also there are the morally marginalised, those who the church looks down on and those who the church hasn't got time for. Maybe the sexually broken, maybe those with the past of some kind of sin. And Jesus talks to these two groups of people, the tax collectors and the sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes complain. Now, Jesus, rather than, as Jesus often does, he, he answers their criticism by launching into three parables. And he launches into three parables about the God who pursues. I think that's a way to think about these three parables, if you wanted to think about them, um, is the God who pursues. And, and what I found fascinating as, as I've looked through these parables and as I've studied it, is that actually... It's the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are all pursuing lost sinners. Sometimes we just think, oh, you know, maybe it's just Jesus who came, and Jesus is the one who pursues us, and Jesus is the one who likes humanity. But what we learn about in these parables is that actually it's God as a whole, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you just look with me briefly at the first parable, the parable is the parable of the lost sheep. And um, it talks about sheep. You know what sheep are like? They're pretty stupid creatures. Um, Sorry if you like sheep. Um, And they tend to, um, they tend to, you know, wander their own way, bleat away and get lost. Um, And and, uh, this sheep in the story, you know, wanders away from the main group and up some kind of crevice somewhere. And the shepherd goes after the sheep and he pursues the sheep which is lost. 
Now, it's a very dangerous job being a shepherd, and particularly in those days, because you never know what wolves are lurking around the corner, and you could put your life at risk as a shepherd, and shepherds often did. Um, But in this story, the shepherd pursues, and who does he leave in the wilderness? He leaves the other sheep in the wilderness. And who do you think the other sheep in the story are a picture of? Any ideas? They're a picture, really, of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the other sheep who are left in the wilderness. They're left in the wilderness of the barrenness of their religion. And they don't even realize that they're lost. Um, But Jesus goes, or the shepherd, who I believe represents Jesus, goes and pursues the sheep, the only sheep that knows it's lost. You know, Jesus said, we know who the shepherd is here, don't we? We know that this is the parable of God pursuing as God the Son, Because the shepherd in this story is Jesus. And we know that in this uh, particular parable, we see the God who pursues as revealed in Jesus, the rescuing shepherd. Jesus, the rescuing shepherd. And indeed, Jesus said, didn't he, that his whole message, uh, his whole mission, why he had come, was to seek and to save that which was lost. But now, interestingly, we go on to look at the next parable briefly, the parable of the lost coin. And in this parable, we really have a picture of the houses at that time in Israel were very dark, um, kind of gloomy little um, houses by the sounds of it, with no windows and no light. And we have this picture of of a woman there uh, with her broom, and she's sweeping the house, and she's lost a coin, something that's very valuable. And silver... Silver speaks of value in the Bible. Silver speaks of value. And um, the, we know that as human beings, the most valuable things that we have are our souls, um, the non-physical part of us, because we know that that is the only part which is going to last for eternity. So the, the silver really speaks of the value, the immense value of one soul. And Jesus said, he said, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and yet he loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so this parable really is a picture of God as the Holy Spirit. It's the God who pursues as revealed in the Spirit who illuminates Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that this is about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit here is the woman has a lamp. And a lamp is the light of the Holy Spirit, which shines into people's souls, helping them to see their need for Christ. So we have the God who pursues as revealed in Jesus, um, the rescuing shepherd. And then we have the God who pursues as revealed in the Spirit who illuminates the spirit who illuminates and finally what I want to um, major on uh, for the rest of what we're saying uh, the rest of the talk this morning is the God who pursues as revealed in the compassion of the father now this is a fascinating parable it's really actually at the heart of the entire Christian faith I think if you can understand this parable then you've probably understood Christianity. You've probably understood really what the point of it is all about. 
You see, this parable Throughout the ages of church history, it was always called the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. But actually, it's the parable of the two lost sons because we find that both sons are equally lost. And more than that, as I say, we find that it's the parable of the father who pursues. So all of, all of humanity can effectively be divided into these two groups, the younger son or the elder son. Now, they're not binary distinctions. So at one time, you may be, um, you may be uh, an elder son. At another time in your life, you may be a younger son. And really what this parable is talking about is it's talking about three approaches to life. Three distinct approaches to life. Three distinct approaches to achieve salvation. So what is salvation? So salvation, we've talked about before, really talks of deliverance, of being delivered or rescued from negative things in your life, whatever that is, whether that's pain or alienation. And another thing that's closely, another idea which is closely allied to the idea of salvation is the idea of freedom, the idea of freedom. Um, And And this parable is basically talking about different approaches that people take in life to achieve salvation or freedom. And so Jesus goes on to tell this story about two sons, two lost sons. Now, superficially, the sons look very, very different, don't they? They look as though they're taking the, the polar opposite approach to life. But actually, they're more similar than it seems at first sight. And in both cases, these sons, their understanding of what they need saving from is deficient. Because their understanding of what they need saving from doesn't include the father, who is the most important figure in this story. They think they need saving from something else. But what they failed to take into account was that the thing that they need saving from is their alienation from the father. So I just want to talk to you through these, these two sons, these two different archetypes, these two different types of people. So, so type number one is the, the younger son. Um, and really the younger son is, if you like, the unrestrained hedonist. The unrestrained hedonist. And his mantra for life is, life is short, so I'm going to enjoy it. Life is short, so I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to squeeze out all of the pleasure that I can get out from life at whatever cost. And I want you to notice three things. I'm going to speak to you about three things about each of these sons. Um, and hopefully they're going to appear on the screen before, behind me um, with the wonders of modern technology. Um, but the first point is that the younger son wants the father's things, but he doesn't want the father. If you look at verse 12a, he says, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Give me. Give me things. Don't give me you. Um, And the second thing I want to say about the younger son is that the younger son's modus operandi, the younger son's approach, is that he chases instant gratification at the expense of relationship. So the son knew, the younger son knew that by requesting this uh, from his father, his, effect, his relationship with the father 
what effect would effectively be finished. It would effectively be over. Because in that culture, if you said to your father, I want you to divide up your estate, you were basically saying, I would rather you were dead, dad. I would rather you were dead. I would rather. So he knew that that would spell the end of his relationship with his father. But he didn't have eyes for his relationship with his father because his relationship with his father was meaningless to him. He could only see the goods, the good things that he had. And not only that, he, he couldn't care less about the impact it had on his father himself. Because you see, in that time, livelihood, he divided to then his livelihood. So the, 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 the culture at that time was that, um, that basically the, the elder son had a double portion. So if you were the elder son, you were quids in. So I would have done quite well. Um, I'm the elder son, so I'd have done quite well. I would have had a double portion, which would have been great. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but, but if you're an elder son, you had, a double, you had a double portion. So in this scenario, when there were two sons, it meant that the elder son would have two-thirds of the estate and the younger son would have one-third of the estate. Now, what did that leave the poor father? Nothing, really, that would have been his own. Um, uh, and so in this, and this all happened after death. It normally happened after death. It didn't happen before the father died. It happened before death. So he was effectively asking him to divvy up his estate. And we have to understand something about in ancient cultures, it wasn't, your land was not just like a garden or like a field or a paddock that you had. Everything that you were was tied up in your land. Your entire identity was tied up in the land. It was your place of status and position in the community. And the word for livelihood there is bios. So it meant that his entire life was tied up in this land. And so the usual response in that culture to a son who asked him to do that would be to chuck the son out of the house, out on his ear, and to reject him. But actually the father doesn't do that. What does the father do? The father actually graciously acquiesces to his request. And uh, he allows him to, um, to take his, his so-called share. Now, obviously, we see something in the father of that. Because there is a reality that God the Father does allow us to an extent to go our own way. He allows us to wander. Um, and he does give us um, a measure of our own uh, free will and our own volition. He allows us to wander. Um, But he often allows us to do that because the father knew the end of the story. The father knew that at some point the son would come back. And then we find the outcome of this all in verses 14 to 16. We find out that the younger son winds up empty and alone. He winds up empty and alone. So his wild behavior leaves him with nothing in the end. He ends up feeding pigs, which is the biggest disgrace you can possibly have in Jewish culture. Um, He ends up hungry. He ends up socially isolated. And his high-octane lifestyle has left him at rock bottom. It's left him empty. It's left him desolate. So who is the younger son? We know what happened. So who is the younger son? That's the next question. Who is the younger son in this story? So in the immediate context, the younger son is the tax collectors and the sinners. Um, It's those that the Pharisees and the scribes looked down on, and they considered them to be the the black sheep. They were the hedonists, um, whereas the Pharisees were the ones who followed all the rules fastidiously and and, and obeyed the law. Um, And so that was the tax collectors and the sinners. But... And Jesus said, Jesus was, as we said at the beginning, he was 
giving this parable in order to answer the accusation of the Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 15. And Jesus, as we said before, Jesus said that I've come to call the righteous and not the sinners to repentance. So that's who the younger son is in the immediate context, the tax collectors and the sinners. But who is the younger son really? Well, the younger son is, is, a, is a representative or an archetype for a certain type of person. For a certain type of person. Um, and that person is still found today and they've got this ideology or this mantra to their lives that life is short, so I'm going to enjoy it. And it's a distinct personality type. It's a type of person who is impulsive, they're reckless, and they pursue pleasure at all costs. And their philosophy can be summed up as in this, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So what are some of the telltale sons that you might be a younger brother? I want to do a little bit of one of those personality tests. Now, this isn't really, this isn't really fail-safe. But as a younger brother, at school, were you one of those uh, children who uh, really wanted to be a teacher's pet and you know, was, a, was a prefect and wanted to conform? No, seeing a few shaking heads. I was, actually. Um, LAUGHTER um, and and you, were less con- you were less concerned about the approval of, of your parents and your teachers, and you just wanted to have a good time now. You just wanted to kind of enjoy it. And perhaps if you were a younger son, perhaps if you're a younger son type of person, then you're less likely to kind of follow conventional pathways in life. So maybe you're not the kind of person who is kind of... This is a generalisation. Um, but So medicine, for example, you're probably less likely to be a younger son doing medicine. You may be. But, you know, with medicine, you're following this very conventional pathway in your life and it's kind of like a conveyor belt and you do your however many years of training and you're doing all the right things and blah, blah, blah. Um, so so you're, you're less likely, if you're, if you're a medic, for example, to be a younger son. Now, these aren't fail-safe ways. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you. But these are just kind of um, hints or giveaways that you may be a younger son. And spiritually speaking, apart from these other things, spiritually speaking... You were uninterested in God and, and religious stuff. Maybe you'd think that you'd put off those things till later in life, till you had a bit more time to think about it, to times when there was less immediate fun to be had. And maybe, like the younger brother in this story, <clears throat> maybe your desire to pursue um, fun at all costs and pleasure at all costs Maybe that kind of earned you the disapproval of people in your life. Maybe it earned you the disapproval of your parents um, and of society, um, and you ended up very isolated. Now, maybe you've also got to the point as a younger son where you've pursued pleasure and, and the fun thing so enthusiastically, but you've got to a point like the younger son where it's left you empty and unsatisfied. And you find that you've got nothing left to eat. There's nothing to sustain you. You've run dry. The Bible calls this, this pursuit of, of pleasure at all costs, pleasure outside of a relationship with God, um, death, a form of death. It says in Romans 6 and verse 21, it says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you then have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But maybe if you're a younger brother this morning, 
that feeling of emptiness inside of you, maybe that's leading you to wonder if there's something more to life than you've experienced so far. And maybe you've just got this feeling that I want to go home. I want to go home. Whatever home is and whatever home means, I want to go there. I want to go home. So that is the younger son. Now there's a totally different uh, son here. We're going to look at him briefly now. Uh, We're going to look at the older son. Now, the older son has the the approach to life. He says, life is unpredictable, so I'm going to control it. I'm going to control life. And rather than being an unrestrained hedonist, we could characterize the older son as being an approval addict. He's an approval addict. He wants everyone to like him. But what I want you to notice in verses 28 to 29 is that the older son also wants the father's things and not the father. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember me saying that before? Someone else, hopefully you, you, listen, you, you remember that from a few moments ago. <laughs> but the, the, young, the, old, the younger son wanted the same thing. They wanted the same thing. They wanted the father's things and not the father. His end goal is exactly the same as the younger son's. And how do we know that? We know that because when his... When, his, uh, when the younger son, the younger brother returns in verse 27, the, the older son is not happy. And the reason he's not happy is because he sees all the expense which is going on the fatted calf. And the fatted calf was a great delicacy. Even to have meat in those times was a huge delicacy and massively expensive. Um, and he sees, he sees the things from his estate, he sees the resources from his estate, 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 dwindling away and being spent on this good-for-nothing younger brother. And so, and so that's how we know what the older brother really wants. He really wants the same as, as the younger brother. But the thing is, the older brother has a completely different um, approach towards achieving the same thing. Um, the older son, he trades instant pleasure for long-term control. That's what he tries to do. He trades instant pleasure for long-term control. And in many ways, the older son is a bit more savvy than the younger son. He realizes that blowing everything in one massive um, hedonistic splurge is not really going to work. It's probably not sustainable, for one thing. And also, it's a very risky way of living. It's very risky just to live this kind of full-out, pleasure-first lifestyle. It's a bit of a gamble. He could lose everything. He could risk being alienated by the people in his life with money and power, the only people who can give him what he really craves, money and power. And so what he does is he adopts a no-pain, no-gain approach to life. He accepts the fact that he's going to have to slave away, work hard for a few years, and eventually... He should get a good shot at the, at the good life eventually. And so what does he do? He becomes a conformist. In every way, he becomes a conformist. He becomes a, he becomes a, uh, he becomes a conformist in that he conforms to the reality that he's got to work hard and that he can't just go out and party all the time. We see that um, in verse 29. We see that he becomes a moral conformist, at least outwardly, 
he conforms to the social mores of the time. Now, I think it's a bit of an exaggeration saying, I never transgressed your commandment. I can't imagine that's true. Um, And he probably transgressed the father's um, commandments all the time in his heart. But because everything, the only thing that really mattered to him was external anyway, the fact that his heart wasn't in the right place didn't really matter to him. So he adopts this very kind of conformist um, approach. And one thing about him is the other thing about him, um, you know, which I want to talk about, is he's, as I say, he's, a, he's an approval addict, or he's basically a people pleaser. And I just want to talk to you very briefly um, about this idea of, of control and, and people pleasing. Because I think it's, it's quite interesting. If you, um, if you uh, look in, in, in literature, you always see these books about um, people pleasers and how that's a bad thing. You know, you've probably seen self-help books on being a people pleaser and how that's such a bad thing. And in some ways it is, but I think it is interesting when we're looking at the older son and he is the ultimate approval addict. He is the ultimate um, uh, people pleaser. It's very interesting to look at what the scriptures have, just very briefly to say, about this idea of people pleasing. Because actually people pleasing isn't always bad in the Bible. It's kind of seen in a positive and a negative light. There is an unhealthy people pleasing and there is a godly or a positive people pleasing. So if you just look at these verses ahead, it says Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 1, he says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them. So again, it's control, isn't it? Again, it's control. It's being to be seen by people so you've then got more clout. That's what the, that's what the older son was doing. Paul says in Galatians 1 and verse 10, he says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So this idea of trying to please people and can become an obstacle or a stumbling block that prevents us from walking in what God has for us, from being that bondservant of Christ. And it says in Proverbs and chapter 29, it says, the fear of man brings a snare because there's a bondage in always being the approval addict. There's a bondage in being the elder brother. There's a bondage in always having to get people to like you so that you can control and manipulate through that approach. There's a bondage in that. But then it says, whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Um, and, and then finally in Colossians, bondservants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. But are there godly forms of pleasing people in the Bible? Well, yes, there are. But it's the motive in each case which determines whether that pleasing of others is a healthy thing and, uh, and a godly thing, or whether it's a negative thing. Because what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19? It sounds as though he's trying to please people. He says, For though I am free from all men, I made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. Does that sound a bit like Paul's trying to please people there? To me it does, but this is an example of healthy people-pleasing. And why is that? Because if you look at at the verse in Matthew, it says, doing your charitable deeds uh, before men to be seen by them. 
That's the motive. It's about control and manipulation and power and about achieving that self-salvation project through exerting control on others. But Paul says here that he became all things to all men that for the gospel's sake, for the gospel's sake. And we're told to please our neighbor for good, following the example of Christ. It says in Romans, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification, for even Christ did not please himself. So I think that's an important thing to get because a lot of people are saying, well, people pleasing is always bad. It's always psychologically a bad thing and we shouldn't do that. Well, actually, there are some ways we should. There are some ways we shouldn't. um, But we need to just be led by the word of God on these matters um, and not become like the older brother. Anyway, that's a bit of a sidetrack. But um, finally, I just want to say, where does the older son end up? So if the younger son ends up kind of empty and alone and isolated, the older son ends up bitter and resentful. And he's bitter because he has a completely warped view of life. In verse 29, he has a warped sense of entitlement. He says, Lo, these many years I've been serving you, and I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. So he thinks he's owed something. God, you owe me something on on the basis of my merit. And not only that, he's got a warped view of of the father. He says to the father in verse 29, he says, You never gave me. You've shortchanged me, God. And isn't that similar to what, if we go back to the Garden of Eden and we think of what, um, we think of what uh, Satan, in the form of the servant, said, he said, God knows that in the day you'll eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It's this idea that God is trying to withhold something from us. He's trying to withhold his goodness. And it's warped. It's a warped perspective. It's an elder brother mentality. And obviously, you know, in verse uh, 30, He's got a warped view of his brother too. He's got a warped view of his brother. He despises his brother for his stupidity and his recklessness. Now, he doesn't despise his brother because he thinks his brother has got the wrong aims or he's going for the wrong thing because he wants the same things as his brother. But he despises his brother for being so stupid in trying to get there the way he has done. So, so although, the, although the older brother superficially appears less lost than the younger brother. Actually, the older brother's lostness runs much deeper than the younger brother's lostness because his entire view of reality, himself, his brother and his father, it's all distorted and wrong. And who is never reconciled in this parable? Who never gets into the father's house? Who is that? It's the elder brother. It's not the younger brother. It's the elder brother. He always remains outside the house, outside fellowship with his father. And just briefly, I'm just going to finish now on uh, on just on the on the on the other son, on the other scenario we get here. So um, this is the second phase, if you like, of the first son of the younger brother. And and this is really the younger son gets to the point where he realizes that life is about relationship. Life is about relationship. And so he says, so I'm going home to my father. And this really talks about the broken and embraced son. He's simultaneously broken and he's embraced. So this moving picture in verse, in verse 20, the, the broken son is found by the father. Now, if you were a, a dignified Middle Eastern patriarch in those days, you didn't run. 
Children did that, um, you know, but, but if, you were, if you were a patriarch, you did not do that. It was just not the done thing. But he runs out. He doesn't care at that moment. He runs out to meet, um, to meet his son. His son was all that mattered to him at that moment in time. And you notice that it's even before the son has actually repented, before he's formally repented and says, you know, Father, I'm sorry, that the father's already pursuing him. Just as he makes those tentative steps towards the father, the father's already running out to pursue him. And God is far more willing to find us than we are to be found. He's far more willing to find us than we are to be found. I love these verses from Jeremiah. It says, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with kindness, I've drawn you. And just see what situation the younger son is in. He has been burnt out by pleasure and he's lost control of his life. So not only has he been kind of wrecked by his own pleasure, not only has he been burnt out by that and ended up at rock bottom, but also he doesn't have any control of his life. At least the older son has got some control of his life. At least he has some influence over his father. At least, at least he has the hope that maybe one day he'll be able to orchestrate things so he gets his share of the money. But the younger son is in a situation where his self-salvation project for, for, for hedonism and pleasure and having everything now hasn't worked. And also, his, and also the idea of having any control over his life has also gone. So he's got neither. In other words, he's come to the end of himself completely. He's come to the end of himself. And then if we look just finally at verses 20 and and, uh, 22 to 24, we find that the broken son repents and he is enveloped in the father's embrace. The broken son repents and he is enveloped in the father's embrace. Now, these, these words aren't mine. They're David Guzik's. Um, so just credit to David Guzik for this. But I, I do like the way he's put this. He just says, he returns as a total servant, but he's welcomed as a total son. Because he comes and he says, Father, I'm willing to be your servant. I'm willing to come back to you as a slave. But his father welcomes him and says, I'm welcoming you as a total son. I'm welcoming you as a total son. And just very briefly... Just, just some features of what the father does to the son once he's welcomed him back in. So the first of all, he says he gives him his best robe. Whose, whose robe do you think was likely to be the best robes in that house? The father's. The father's. Yes, it's being mouthed to me. The father's robe was the best robe in that house. The father's robe. The robe of the father. He was given the father's robe. And we're given, as as believers, as we're welcomed and embraced by God, as we're broken and we're simultaneously embraced at the same time, we're given the robe of the father. And Paul says, doesn't he? He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Christ is our robe. He is our garment, the garment of salvation, the robe of the father. And the ring, he's given a ring on his finger. And what do you think of rings when you think of rings on your finger? You think of maybe engagement or marriage. You think of relationship. So the ring speaks of relationship. The ring of the father. It speaks of an eternal relationship. Um, And it says in Ephesians, it says, But now in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. So they were far off, but they've been brought into this relationship with the Father, this closeness, this warm embrace. We're near to God. And sandals on his feet. So if you were a servant at that time, you didn't wear um, shoes. You just had to be bare feet, uh, barefooted, basically. Bare feet, barefooted. Um, but, but only sons wore shoes. Only sons wore shoes. And so by giving him the sandals, that was a sign of his sonship. And Paul says, doesn't he? Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So <clears throat> just want to bring this to a conclusion now. And I just want to bring it to a conclusion by, by speaking very briefly about Jesus. Because some people have said in this parable, where is Jesus? Because it seems that it's all very easy, isn't it? The son repents, he comes home to his father, and the father reconciles him. So where is, where is the sacrifice? Where is the blood of Christ? Where is Jesus in this parable? You see, Jesus is the cost. Jesus is the cost. Because although the reconciliation came free of charge to the son, it came at an immense price to the father. The father's life was literally torn asunder. It was wrenched in two. That word bios or livelihood, that was his life, everything he had, everything that was most precious to him was rent asunder. It wasn't free for the father. Because do you remember the father says to the older son, you know, the youngest son has spent everything, says to the older son, everything I have is yours now. And in a sense, the father was left destitute or empty in that sense. And that really speaks to us of, of the father, the father forgiving us at great cost. And the cost was Jesus. It wasn't free. Forgiveness is never free. It's free to the recipient, but it's not free to the one who forgives. Um, and I just want to finish really with these verses um, from 1 Peter. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The precious blood of Christ, the cost of reconciliation. And so what I want to say to you now is just whether, you're, whether you see yourself more as, as a rebellious younger son, as, as an unrestrained hedonist, or whether you're a controlling older brother, whether you're an approval addict, the Father is pursuing you. The Father is pursuing you this morning. And the only question really is this. It's are you ready to go home? Are you ready to go home to the Father? Are you burnt out on pleasure-seeking? Are you sick of controlling your life? If the answer to these questions is yes, then the Father is, is running to meet you. He's more willing to, for you to be found by him than you are to find him.